0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today, Professor Daniel Lasker. Professor Lasker received his BA, MA, and PhD from the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University. Professor Lasker is the Norbert Blechner Professor of Jewish Values Emeritus in the Goldstein Gorin Department of Jewish Thought at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. Uh, Dr. Lasker's academic areas of interest focus on medieval Jewish philosophy, including the thoughts of Yehuda Halevi, Maimonides, Hasdai Kreska, Jewish-Christian relations, and Kerite Judaism. Professor Lasker has authored numerous books, including Kerism, An Introduction to the Oldest Surviving Alternative Judaism, the Refutation of the Christian Principles, Jewish Philosophical Polemics Against Christianity in the Middle Ages, Theological Encounters at a Crossroads, and Studies in late medieval Kerite Philosophy, just to name some of the publications. And today we will be discussing the absolutely fascinating topic of the life and writings of Yehuda Halevi and the Kuzari. Professor Lasker, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much.
1: Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me.
0: Okay. Um, Just to get started, um, a little bit about the early life and education of Yehuda Halevi.
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have very much of an answer. First of all, we don't even know where or when uh, Yehuda Halevi was born. We know it's someplace in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, We used to think Toledo in 1085, which was the year in which it was recaptured by the Christians. Some people think it's Tudela. Uh, Other people say we don't know. Probably in Christian (coughs) Spain, but in an area or in an environment in which the Arabic-Islamic component was very strong. So uh, it's obvious that Halevi, as a child, got a strong Jewish education—Bible, uh, obviously, rabbinic literature, but also uh, philosophy, medicine. He became a doctor and uh, poetry. So he had a, a wide-ranging, well-rounded, well-rounded education. But we don't know who his teachers are. We don't know exactly what he studied. We don't know exactly where. And as I said, we don't know the date of birth either. Usually people guess somewhere between 1075 and 1085. Uh What we do know is that as at an early age, he showed uh, good propensity toward poetry. And he impressed the leading poet of the day, Moshe Ibn Ezra, and even went to visit him in Granada, from which they were both, uh, I would say expelled or, or uh, fled because of the uh, invasion, invasion of the Ravids. So the um, we know a little bit about his area, what he was doing, but beyond that, uh, it's very, very, I would say, very murky in a sense. Okay. Um,
0: the Kuzari, Halevi's famous, famous work. Um, a little bit of background as to um, what motivated, uh, if we know, um, yudah Halevi to write the Kuzari.
1: Well, he describes Judaism as a despised religion. And it was a period of time in which there were major, major warfare between Christians and Muslims, both in the Iberian Peninsula and in the land of Israel, the Crusaders, and the Jews sort of I would say sat in the sidelines, often they were influenced by these wars they were caught in the middle. but both Christians and Muslims used their temporal power, the power on the physical power on earth, as an argument for the truth of their religions and Jews living in the Iberian Peninsula, I call it Spain modern day Spain but Spain is a didn't exist as such at the time. Jews in the Iberian Peninsula saw what was going on, were obviously depressed by it, and perhaps were even influenced by the argument that might makes right that the truth of either Christianity or Islam can be determined by the their strength and their the number of adherents. So a number of times in the book of Kuzari, the Haver, the sage, who from my point of view represents Judah Levi, explains that the truth of religion is not dependent on temporal success in this world, but on other criteria, especially historical criteria, which Jews and Judaism uh, met and Christianity and Islam didn't meet. So you have the, the threat or the challenge of Christianity in Islam, which is very strong in the Iberian Peninsula. There's also the challenge of philosophy. The first uh, type of medieval Jewish philosophy or theology was based on a type of theology called Kalam from the, from the Islam, which was amenable for use of defending Traditional Jewish beliefs and traditional religious beliefs, but at the time of Halevi, the dominant uh, philosophical school was becoming Aristotelianism, which was much more of a challenge to traditional religion. So he had the challenge of philosophy, had the challenge of Christianity, the challenge of Islam, and also the challenge of charism, which, as you mentioned, I recently wrote a book of an introduction to charism. Uh, it's a form of Judaism which accepts the Bible does not accept the rabbinic law or the oral Torah as encapsulated in the Talmud. So all these groups in a sense were um challenged. I don't I wanna I should use I don't know if I should use the word threat. Threat they threaten Judaism, but they challenged Judaism. Uh and one could even add one more challenge, which was the type of individual pietism which was propounded by um Rabbi Nobachi ibn Pakuda, about a generation or two before Judah Halevi, in his book, The Duties of the Heart, where it was a very individualistic, centered Judaism of pietism and of asceticism, as opposed to Halevi's view of Judaism as a religion for collective people of Israel, ideally in the land of Israel and not in the diaspora. So we had all these different challenges and all these different competing ideas. And Halevi obviously felt a need to present his view of Judaism, his proofs for the truth of Judaism, and his interpretation of how one should uh, go about being a Jew, which for him was very much tied to the Jewish people, the collective, and ultimately to the land of Israel.
0: What are what are the major sections the structure of the Kuzari? How did Yehudah Levi set the uh, this writing
1: up? Okay, so the the book is written as a dialogue. It's not the first medieval Jewish book written as a dialogue between two characters. Before that was um, Solomon ibn Gibral, Melomah ibn Gibral's Makor Chaim Source of Life, but this is a sort of a living dialogue recalling somewhat platonic dialogues in which all the um, all the characters, all the protagonists uh, contribute toward the discussion and the conclusions. So it begins with uh, the historical story of the conversion of the Khazars. The Khazars were people in Central, Euro- Central Asia who for some reason converted to Judaism uh, according to the traditions that we have, it was a result of the fact that the king of the Khazars had a dream in which he was told that his intentions were good, but his actions weren't. He went looking for a an alternate religion. Uh, he talked to a Christian and Muslim and then to a Jew and decided to become a Jew. There are various versions of the story and the one Halevi tells is to to promote his own views. So for instance, he adds into the the king's searches a philosopher, an Ersotelian philosopher. So the first book begins with the king's dream, his calling upon a philosopher, a Christian and a Muslim to try to convince him that they have the correct uh, actions. Uh, he doesn't call a Jew at first because he's convinced that the fact that Jews are such a small despised minority that it couldn't be po- they couldn't possibly have the true religion, so he invites these other uh, representatives, quickly finds them unappealing, and then uh calls the Jew. so the first book is devoted to the general exposition of Judaism and the proof of Judaism through history at the beginning of the second book, the king. Converts and actually converts his whole people. It's interesting, he doesn't wait till the end. Usually, when you have a dialogue uh, in which one side is trying to convince the other, it's usually at the end of the of the book that one side is convinced. Here the king converts to the beginning of the second part. Uh, then the second, third, and fourth parts are devoted to further expositions of Judaism, what the king or what the, the author calls Hebrew questions. Uh, details about the names of God, about the reasons for the commandments, uh, what makes a a good person, what is wrong with charism, uh, and a number of other topics. The fifth book is devoted to a re- refutation of the philosophy. Uh, even though at the beginning of the book, the king is exposed to a philosopher and doesn't accept the philosopher, it's only at the end of the book that the author presents a, I'd say, a rationalistic refutation of Aristotelian philosophy. And then at the very end of the book, the Javer the sage, informs the Kuzari, the king, that he's off to the land of Israel. The Kuzari tries to convince him that not to go, it wasn't necessary. And the Javer says, no, he's going. He explains why. And this mirrors Judah Halevi's own life, where at the end of his life, he also went to the land of Israel. I'd say probably also a polemic against his contemporary uh, Iberian Jewish community, who were very, very comfortable in Iberia and Spain. They, many of them were rich, many of them were courtiers, and they had no real interest in getting to the land of Israel. So the book Kuzari and the life of Judah Halevi worked together to argue for the importance of living in the land of Israel.
0: Um, Aristotelian philosophy, um, philosophy in general, uh, Kuzari would be considered a philosophical work. And and is that something that his audience would understand, you know, today in the traditional Jewish curriculum, um, you know, We don't learn philosophy. Who learns philosophy, you know, in in a traditional Jewish curriculum, whether that's right or wrong? His audience would be receptive to philosophical arguments. So, Is it a philosophical work?
1: Well, there's a great debate as to how to understand the work. Some people think it's just a polemical work. Others say it's anti-philosophical. Some even see the mystical aspects of the work. I think one thing to remember is that philosophy in the Middle Ages did not mean just what you learn in a philosophy department at a university, but meant the whole realm of science. So astronomy was part of uh, philosophy. Physics was part of uh, uh, philosophy. Um, Logic, all the sciences were basically started as part of philosophical investigation. Now, in terms of Halevi and the book Kuzari, I would say that it uses rationalistic argumentation. So it's not a book of philosophy as such if we see philosophy as Aristotelian philosophy or strictly metaphysics, but as a book which uses rationalistic arguments to to promote its beliefs, it's certainly in the realm or the ballpark of the philosophy. Now, when we talk about medieval Jewish thoughts, we often, um, I'd say define things very, uh, uh, strictly. So you have mysticism, you have philosophy, you have rabbinic thoughts, which is supposedly mostly legal thought, Uh, and very few people from the point of view of the academy, uh, transgress those lines, uh, if we use those categories of philosophy, mysticism, legal, halachic works, so certainly Kuzari is in the realm of philosophy. My own view is that we could, we can identify or mark Halevi's thought as a type of empiricism. Now, in early modern um, Europe and England, there's a great debate between the continental rationalists. And the uh, British empiricists, namely the rationalists, who thought that there were certain inborn ideas that people knew without experience, whereas empiricists say no, you have to have experience to know anything. So, for Halevi says there are certain truths of reason, but ultimately the real truths are empirical truths. So that if you have a an experience which you are sure is correct, and it seems to go against the uh, theory that you might have, the scientific theory, then you have to adjust the scientific theory. I'll give you an example. According to Aristotle, for one item to move another item, they have to touch. There has to be physical contact. But then there's such a thing called a magnet. You can put a magnet down and can cause iron to move without touching it. So the medievals had to figure out how could it be that you had such an item which went against the rational rules. So, too, you might say that rationally it's difficult, impossible for God to, to talk to humans or interact with humans. But we have the empiricism, we have the experience, we have the proof from divine revelation to the people of Israel and to the prophets. And Halevi takes this divine revolution, revelation very seriously because he says the Torah tells us that there are 600,000 witnesses. 600,000 witnesses can't be wrong. These witnesses saw what they saw, experienced what they experienced. They then transmitted it generation after generation. And therefore, this is empirically true. The, the revelation in Sinai and the miracles and the revelation to other prophets is empirically true. Therefore, we have to come up with some kind of explanation how it's possible. From my point of view, the explanation of how it's possible is a rationalistic explanation. It's almost a scientific explanation. And therefore, that puts the book in the realm of philosophy or rationalism. Other people disappear, disagree. They think some of the arguments are just polemical, that Judah Halevi himself didn't even believe in the article, the arguments that he was making. But I think that one can take uh, what he writes pretty seriously.
0: Professor um, Lasky, you had mentioned that there were obviously other philosophical Jewish works and, uh, that preceded Halevi, and this was a period of Islamic uh, philosophical uh, workings. Um, how does Halevi's Kuzari compare to the work of Sajig M and the dayot
1: Okay, Saji so Gaon lived uh, 200 years before Halevi. He was active in Baghdad, born in Egypt and moved to Baghdad, became the Gaon, the head of the academy. And he was involved in all fields of Jewish endeavor, from philosophy to uh, exegesis, commentary on the Bible, translations of the Bible, poetry, history, polemics against uh, Karites, polemics against uh, other Rabbinite Jews, Issues of the calendar. He was a, a man of, of unbelievable uh, uh, breadth. And he believed, along with his Islamic uh, models, that reason was sufficient to prove the truth of Judaism. Uh, M- Muslims thought reason was su- su- sufficient to prove the truth of Islam. But uh, uh, Saja used it, I'd say, converted the Islamic Kalam to be able to prove the truth of Judaism. So that if one used reason correctly, according to Saja, one would come to the conclusions of Judaism, which raises a question for Saja, why have revelation? Why do you have God informing the Jewish people the nature of Judaism if reason could discover all this on its own? The answer is that not everybody's reason is sufficient and this is a sort of a shortcut. But what Saja tries to do is take the whole breadth of the Jewish experience, the Jewish religion, and show how it is rationally not only possible, but necessary. So he cr- proves the creation of the world, the existence of God through the creation of the world, the nature of God, the God's unity, uh, revelation, the reasons for the commandments, and then other theological issues like resurrection, resurrection the coming of the Messiah, and the world to come. The idea that reason is sufficient to prove the truth of Judaism is something that Halevi doesn't accept. He thinks that reason has its limits. Re- Judaism, no Jewish belief, is contradicts reason, but reason can't necessarily prove it. And therefore it's absolutely necessary for there to have been uh, revelation. Uh, Saj's work is systematic and most of the thinkers of the Middle Ages wrote systematic works. Alevi's is more literary with this debate between the Kuzari and the Haver. Uh It jumps from topic to topic. There are no, other than the five parts, there are no specific topics or, or subcategories. The Sajah's book has 10 sections, 10 uh, parts, each one devoted to a specific topic. You don't have that in the Kuzari. The Kuzari is much more expansive, much more literary. And I would say much more attractive to the reader.
0: Professor um, Last, you had mentioned before, obviously the the Khazars and the, the king and the nation that um, converts in the Khazari um, to the Jewish religion. What is the historical support? There's been so many novels, so many books on the Khazars mm-hmm. and the Khazar and the empire and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What's the historical support for that? Whole story.
1: Okay, it the I'd say the world's knowledge about the the Khazars started in the uh, 10th century when Chastai Ibn Shaprut, who was the sort of foreign minister of Abdul Rahman the Third, the Caliph, the Umayyad Caliph of uh, of Andalusia, of uh, Muslim Spain, heard from travelers that there was this nation in central asia the jewish nation he wrote a letter and received uh, to the king and asked what's going on he received a letter back this is from a king of the time named Yosef who explains what i said before about the king's uh, search for a um, for the true religion it is true that many people over the years have doubted the historicity of the letter there has a question of whether it's just the king and the royalty or the nobility that converted or everyone converted. We don't have any literature as such from the Khazars. However, in the past, say, 50 years or so, more and more research has substantiated the letter from Yosef, some of the descriptions of the Khazar life and the Khazar history, seem to be substantiated from uh, other sources. Coins were found mentioning the word the name Moses. A letter was found in the Gnizah, which might have some Hazar writing or Hazar names in it. Uh and therefore even though there are still people who doubt to this day that Hazars actually became Jewish, I would say that the uh I follow those uh, experts who uh, say definitely there is a historical basis now according to the kuzari the conversion was in the year 740 of the common era uh most historians date it to the 9th century the 800s uh according to the uh kuzari, the the khazars were very uh successful physically militarily financially i don't know how much we can substantiate that but the basic idea that the Khazars uh, converted and that were this Jewish kingdom, I think is pretty well established now, despite the, the naysayers. I would just add that there are those who have tried to say that Ashkenazi Jewry is descended from the Khazars and therefore have no relationship to the biological people of Israel, no relation to the land of Israel. Uh that theory, again, I don't think has anything to recommend it. The Ashkenazi Jewry came from the West. They speak a German language, uh, Yiddish. We have no real way of finding descendants of the Khazars today.
0: Aside from um, the Kuzari, which brings the Khazars, are there any other Jewish sources um, that that talk about the Khazars and their conversion that are not based on Yehuda
1: Halevi. Well, you have the letter, which was the basis of the Kuzari the letter from to, from Joseph, the king of the Khazars, to Chastayim and Shaprut, um, and you have a number of Karite sources mentions the Khazars as converts. Uh, we have the letters they sent from Geniza, We have the coins. So there there seems to be a reason to accept it. Um, and as I said, in terms of Joseph's letter, the details in the letter have now been substantiated as being accurate from what we know from other sources. So uh, the the doubting, I can understand why people would want to doubt. We have no literature. Um, we don't have other contemporary accounts of it. We do have uh, Muslim sources which mention the the Khazars and their Judaism. Some do and some don't, and they mention it. Uh, but um, yeah. would it be nice to be able to dig up the areas which now that was once Hazaria and find the uh, Hebrew documents? And uh, that would be wonderful, but we don't have that.
0: Where is that exactly today? Where
1: it's it Central Asia, uh, between the Caspian and the Black Sea, okay. areas which are very, uh, still very, I'd say, um, I won't say warlike, but there is a lot of civil unrest in those areas. the former areas of the foreign Soviet Union or parts still of the Soviet Union. Uh, the l- document from the uh, from uh, the Geniza, if I'm not mistaken, is from Kiev or mentions Kiev. So we're talking about that Central Asia part of the world. Okay. Um,
0: as you mentioned, Pres. Lasker a lady, was, was a poet, um, a, a rich collection of poetry that we have. What type of poetry did he write? And what's the connection between poetry, if there is one, and the Kuzari?
1: Okay, so um, Hebrew poetry in Iberia, Andalusia, it's now Spain, was highly modeled on Arabic uh, types of poetry. And many Jews adopted the Arabic form of poetry but wrote it in Hebrew, even though they wrote other works in Arabic. So, for instance, Kuzari itself was written in Arabic, what we call Judeo Arabic. Uh, but the poetry was written in Hebrew, and that was part of the, I'd say, competition between Jews and Muslims as to who had the better the better language, the more uh, pure language. The Muslims uh, wrote wine poetry; they wrote uh, love poetry even though presumably wine is forbidden in Islam and then um uh, I don't know how much today you wouldn't find such uh, open poetry about women uh in this in the Muslim world. Uh so Jews did that as well and they, they took the forms of the poetry, the various different uh, types of poems and the subjects. Of course Jews also wrote liturgical poetry, uh keynote which are dirges for lamentations for instance Tisha B'Av. They wrote uh, the the, um, poems that uh, were uh, praise of God. So we have all these, uh, I'd say, all these uh, um, genre in Judah Halevi. What happens is that in the Kuzari, the Khaver, the sage who represents Judah Leib, is critical of poetry, especially that poetry which follows Islamic models, and uh, praises Hebrew biblical poetry, especially Psalms, at the exclusion to the exclusion of uh, the models from the from the Islamic or Arabic world. There is also some evidence that Halevi was. Uh, Regretted in his older life the poetry he'd written as a youth, namely wine, women, and song. Uh, we don't know for sure. In term, there's one other uh, genre of poetry that Halevi wrote, which was the Zionite uh, poems. Uh, I'm in the uh, my heart is in the east, and I'm in the furthest edge of the west. Uh, Sion will you not inquire about the the uh, your captives? Uh, many of them have became part of the liturgy and it was this love of Zion which animated the poetry which also animates the book of Kuzari and one can see from his poetry about Zion and about Sion and Israel that this was a major um, major uh, obsession I'd even say by for Judah Halevis which he then um, um Put into action by uh, by going to the land of Israel. The there are certain poems that seem to express some of the ideas which occur in the Kuzari. This is a field which there's a lot of I'd say controversy about how much one can learn about one's thought from one's poetry, uh, but certainly they they in the sense they. Complement the, the, the philosophical or rationalist book Kuzari, and some of the poetry complement each other.
0: So poetry was was commonplace in that era. People were into poetry. Great Jewish thinkers like Kalady and others wrote poetry. What happened over the years? Like, why why aren't we in love? As a, the Jewish people
1: with poetry today, like what happened to um, poetry? I don't, I don't know how to expl- explain it, but I, I assume it has to do with the uh, societies in which we live. Why were Jews in Spain and certain places in the Middle East enamored with poetry? Because they saw that the poets were considered in, this, in the Islamic world were the head, the, the top of the uh, pecking order. To be a, an accomplished poet was uh, was a great thing. In these societies as well, there were patrons of poetry. It was often uh, a good uh, business move to become a poet if one could find uh, a rich person to whom, whom one would praise and who would pay for those praises. I, I think in, uh, there are certain societies in which poetry is still uh, honored in today's world, uh, but certainly not as much as it was in the, the Islamic world at the time. And the Jews, a from the Muslims, I think okay
0: as opposed to music which jewish music is like is everywhere right? you know it's, it, there's this tremendous resurgence if that's the right word of, of jewish music today as opposed to poetry
1: well i would think that that also has to do with the societies in which jews live and uh also you might have to do with modern forms of communication where you can hear music right away and that's hear it in the background one doesn't have to pay attention with poetry one has to right. uh, have a lot of, uh, have a long attention span for understanding poetry.
0: You, you had mentioned that um, we don't have that much information about Halevi's um, life and, and, and teachers. Uh, what about colleagues, associates, students? Um, who did he associate with that we know of?
1: Well, I mentioned uh, Moshe Ibn Ezra, who was a generation older than, than he was, who was a major poet and also a student of poetry. Perhaps his closest colleague and even relative was Abraham Ibn Ezra, who was the same family of Moshe Ibn Ezra, but they're not related. There are many legends about Ibn Ezra. According to some legends, um, Judah Halevi met this poor bedraggled uh, person in the in the marketplace and they started talking Torah and he brings home this unfortunate fellow his wife takes one look at him and says don't bring him here he's going to marry your daughter and it ends up being uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra who married their daughter he did not marry their daughter Abraham Ibn Ezra perhaps was the father of the wife of Judah Halevi's son so they might have been mechutanim. We say in uh, laws with each other. Uh, this is also a uh, debatable point. It's based on a letter in the Geniza, which uses a word which usually means uncle. But Ibn Ezra couldn't have been an uncle of Judah Halevi because Ibn Ezra wasn't a, a, a wasn't wasn't a Levi. Um, but what we know most about their relationship. Is the fact that Ibn Ezra in his commentaries on the Bible quotes Judah Halevi quite often. And an interesting example, for instance, is in the Ten Commandments, where Ibn Ezra says that Judah Halevi asked him, Ibn Ezra, why the Ten Commandments begins with the statement, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And Ibn Ezra writes that he explained to Halevi, that this has to do with basically different types of Jews. You have those who understand philosophy, and it was enough to say, I'm the Lord, your God, and others who don't understand philosophy, to which one had to add the historical aspect, took you of the land of Egypt. In the Kuzari, when Judah Levi discusses it, he gives the exact opposite answer. He says, the reason we begin the Ten Commandments with history is to identify God as the God of history. So the two of them talked, often disagreed. In 1140, when Judah Levi left for the land of Israel, Abraham Ibn Ezra left for Europe. But the, this was the closest uh, colleague that we know. We know that he had friends, Khalfon Halevi, who was a, a, a merchant from Egypt, and it's thanks to a letter from Halevi to Khalfon where he mentions the book, Al-Kitab al-Hazari, the book of the Chazars, the Kuzari, uh, which is a great discovery from the Geniza. In terms of students and disciples, we have no indication that he had any of those. Um, obviously, he talked to people and he maybe taught, but he was a doctor. He was involved in communal affairs like uh, rescuing captives. But it wasn't like we can identify a school or a circle of Halevi and colleagues and students.
0: What was written first, the Kuzari or Ibn Ezra's commentary on the Bible?
1: No, oh, Okay, so all of Ibn Ezra's works are after Kuzari. Ibn Ezra, before he left uh, Iberia in 1140, we don't know of any definite writings of his. It was only when he got to Europe, uh, or, I'm sorry, in Christian Europe, Western Europe, uh, parts of France and Germany and, and uh, England, uh, that he wrote those commentaries and quoted Halevi. In fact, it's very possible that given the fact that Halevi was dead by then, he attributed things to Halevi, which Halevi couldn't uh, couldn't uh, retract or couldn't uh, re- uh, refute because he was no longer around. So it's an interesting relationship between the commentaries of uh, Ibn Ezra and Kuzari, but commentaries are definitely later. And, and the
0: Kuzari was written initially in what language?
1: Written in Arabic, or we call Judeo Arabic. Judeo Arabic is not only Arabic language in Hebrew letters; it also has many Hebrew words in it, and even has some grammatical aspects which are closer to spoken Middle Arabic than to classical Arabic of the Quran and of the of the Arabic writers. So, it's written in uh, in Arabic in a. Environment in which Arabic was the literary language, and this by the way, despite the praises in the kuzari of the Hebrew language as being the most perfect language when it came to writing science, he had to write it in uh, in Arabic as many other or almost all other Jews in the Islamic world did uh, It was translated into Hebrew in eleven sixty seven by Judah Ibn Tebone as one of the first works translated from Arabic into Hebrew. Uh, and it had a much, I'd say, more important afterlife in the Hebrew translation than it did in the original Arabic. We have only one almost full manuscript of the Kuzari surviving in Arabic. We have dozens of surviving manuscripts of the Hebrew translation. Uh, the Arabic world, which after Maimonides, there was not much interest in uh, rationalism and, and philosophy, Um We have almost no resonance of the work. It's quoted by a number of people, but not very many. Maimonides never cites him specifically, even though there's reason to believe that he knew the Kuzari. But it's only in the Hebrew-speaking world who read the translation that the the book became or had its most resonance. What
0: was the work, uh, the Arabic work, published during his lifetime?
1: No, so, I don't know, publishing usually implies printing. Right. Did he issue it? Right. <laughs> he wrote it. Obviously, it, it got to other people. Right. Uh, but the, um, it, it it did not, we don't, except for some Geniza fragments, and this one manuscript which was written 300 years after the book was written, uh, we don't have very much evidence of the survival of the, of the or the influence of the original book this the arabic speaking world and where is that manuscript today it's in the Bodleian uh, library of oxford okay. and was sort of rediscovered in the 19th century which is when they started to make editions. there is an edition of in, in the 1880s of this arabic text a much better edition including uh geniza fragments was published in 1971 Uh, There have been quite a number of recent Hebrew translations, uh, most from the the Arabic. In terms of the English translations, there's only the only one currently available that was made from the original Arabic was done by the same person who edited the text. His name is Hartwig Hirschfeld. Uh, There have been a number of English translations, which unfortunately have not been made from the Arabic. They've been made from the Hebrew and are therefore not uh, sufficiently uh, accurate. Uh, sometime, hopefully in the not-too-far future, will be an edition of a new translation uh, done by Barry Cogan, will be published by Yale Judaica Series, of the Yale University Press. Uh, I'm helping working on that, and it's not quite yet into production, so it'll be a little bit while yet. Um Yehuda
0: Halevi and the land of Israel, as you've explained, this is tremendous love for Zion and Israel. Um, Yehuda Halevi's move to the land of Israel: myth and reality. What do we know about it? What could be substantiated? What are the different versions?
1: Okay, so the um, Jewish tradition, the legendary Jewish tradition, has him arrive in the land of Israel. Gets to the gates of of Jerusalem, prostrates himself uh, at the gates, sings his uh, ode to Zion. Zion, we would not request or look after your uh, prisoners. And then is run over or killed um, on purpose by a Muslim uh, horseman. We have that tradition of the murder or the accident is many years after Halevi's death. At the time, Jerusalem and the land of Israel was under the Crusaders. So to say it's a Muslim horseman is not quite possible to, to substantiate or not quite clear that it would be possible at the time. What we do know is, again, from the letters from the Gnezzah, that in spring of 1140, Judah Halevi left uh, Iberia and as I said he was born somewhere between 1175 1075 1085 which means he was uh, 55 to 65 years old arrived in Alexandria he was greeted with great uh, fanfare in Alexandria also his friend Khalfon from uh, was from Cairo and the local Jews in Egypt tried to dissuade him from going to, to the land of Israel. Uh, during the year between the, the, the fall of 10, 1140 and the spring of 1141, uh, he circulated in Egypt. Apparently, he also tried to get to the land of Israel by the overland route, in other words, through Sinai, and it was unsuccessful. And then the last real indication we have from him was a poem written on a boat in alexandria on the eve of shavuot in 1141 he'd gotten to the boat on alexandria waiting for the winds to change after all they didn't have motors they had to wait for the favorable winds to come from the west to propel them to the east and he is waiting for the the the, uh, the winds uh, the wind direction to change so we know that he was on a boat in Alexandria Shavuot time of 1141. And we have a few months later a letter from someone else who mentions people who died over the summer over during that year and mentions Judah Halevi. So from these facts it would appear that he actually got to, if he didn't die until July or August of 1141 and was waiting for the winds to change in uh, in May, the likelihood is he got to the land of Israel. What happened there we we maybe have a poem or two from him from there but that's all very uh up in the air so we have one hand the tradition where he got there and was uh, killed by a by a horseman others who on the basis of earlier discoveries of the Geniza thought he arrived only in egypt and never was able to leave and now as i said the likelihood is that he got to the land of israel unfortunately he was not able to enjoy a long life there once he got there.
0: As, as you teach um, the Kuzari the Levy, um to your students, to young people, how do you teach it? Why should young people study the Kuzari today? And why do you think it appears that there's been a resurgence of interest in the Kuzari? Why is that?
1: Okay, let me start with the end. The reason for the resurgence of Kuzari, from my point of view, is its narrow, ethnocentric, um, essentialist view of Judaism. In other words, Judah Halevi thought that Jews were essentially different from other people to the extent that even someone who converted to Judaism doesn't become a full Jew. Um, we are living in an era, era where, I guess what's now being called Jewish supremacism is widespread and popular. And here you have the uh, ideational justification for such a view. Now, when I teach it, I'll put it a different way. One sees um, scholarship about Kuzari, especially from outside of Israel, which tries to play down those Essentialist views of the of the people of Israel and try to find explanations or explain the text in a different manner, I think that this is apologetics. I understand why one would want to engage in apologetics, especially outside of Israel, but I still think that that's not what the author meant. So the book is popular in certain circles for justification of certain political views certain religious views about the the people of Israel and Judaism. And it's not necessarily those views that I personally agree with or would like to be promoted. But I teach the book as an example of one trend in Jewish thoughts. I often compare it with Maimonides, who much more would be considered a universalist and would seize all human beings basically to be equivalent The difference between Jews and non-Jews is that the Jews observed the Torah and the Jews got the Torah because of Abraham, in a sense, discovering God. So for Halevi, God had no choice but to give the Torah to the Jews because they had a special quality. For Maimonides, God gave the Torah to the Jews because Jews chose God, as it were. Uh, I often uh, say the difference between Jews and non-Jews for Halevi is a matter of hardware that Jews and non-Jews are totally different or totally separate. For Maimonides, it's a question of software, how one programs a human being. A human being is born, even if that person has Jewish parents, if he or she is raised as a non-Jew, for all intents and purposes, that person is a non-Jew. If you take a a non-Jew and raise a non-Jew as a Jew, for all intents and purposes, that person is a Jew. So it's a much more universalistic open, uh, I'd say almost tolerance, even though Maimonides was not particularly a tolerant person than Halevi. So when I teach, I try to show that Judaism has a wealth of sources and views and that one has to analyze them to see how valid and how accurate one sees these views to be. In terms of popularity, I think it has to do with political and religious uh, issues where Um, Halevi makes today's Jews feel a lot better about themselves and about Judaism than perhaps Maimonides or other Jewish thinkers. I would also add that from my point of view uh, in the 12th century when the book was written, it was very good for encouraging Jews who felt that they were um, despised and uh, oppressed. In the 21st century when you have a renewed Jewish state, perhaps the message is not as important or perhaps could even be somewhat uh, damaging. So uh, I don't know if that's the answer to your question about no, not, it, it,
0: it, it. Could you link the popularity today in certain circles, uh, let's take out the political element to the fact that there is this love for Zion and the land of Israel. And as you just mentioned, there's a resurgence in that whole area, obviously with the state of Israel.
1: Correct. And the, uh, but uh, as you well know, the, the issue of the state of Israel and Zionism is, is controversial among Jew- even among Jews. And uh, often one uses the love of the land and the divine promise, uh, not for religious needs, but more for political needs. And the, as I'm saying, it seems to me the book fits well into the agenda of certain groups which for whom the love of the land of Israel is the most important part of the, their Jewish identity. Okay.
0: Uh, this has been fascinating that just a little taste of Yudha Lady, the Kuzari, and certainly um, encourage uh, all our listeners and viewers to go online uh, and, and read Professor Lasker's works and to go online and purchase uh, some of the books, especially the new book on, on the Karaites, the more recent book on the Karaites, and, Professor Lasker, thank you so much uh, for your time today. We appreciate it very much.
1: You're welcome. Nice talking to you.